Wall Street is full of corruption and it is baked in to every aspect of our society. MMT is a lens by which you assess all economic understanding at the macro level. In the 1900s, Lenin was predicting global finance capital would do all the things it's doing today. This was written over a hundred years ago. This is The Rogue Scholar with Steve Grumbine. Hey everybody, it is Steve, the Rogue Scholar, 11.05 Eastern Standard Time, so I'm not exactly what you call high energy tonight, which is pretty good because that means I'll probably not be as animated and I'll probably be more calm and stuff like that. Um, but today has been one of those wacky days. There's been a couple wacky days, okay? Um, for the uh, my appearance on uh, Status Coup Thursday night, I do a show on Thursdays at 8 p.m. Eastern Time called Let's Get Ready to Grumble. Yeah, catchy, cool, whatever. Um, but I pre-recorded. It's usually either a three-ring, three-round fight or an interview with somebody. In this particular week, I brought on Savage Joy. Savage Joy, who spent her first three or four years of her uh, media activism career <laughs> um, at Real Progressives and Real Progress in Action. And she covered most of the candidate interviews we did for a number of years. Um, very, very integral part. And she lives in my backyard. So it was a fun time to get back together with Joy and uh, and talk about this national versus state Medicare for all. Uh, some of you all may or may not know, July 30th in the nation's capital, there will be a uh, another large Medicare for all march. And there'll be a week of action up to that point. Um, and, you know, Real Progressives and Real Progress in Action are very proud to be involved in that. Um, but per the usual, um, you know, there are people that don't like us not celebrating that state-based approach, that state-by-state -state approach. So this is one of the 99 problems we're going to talk about tonight. The other 99 problem is something interesting that came up. Um, you know, I'm ambivalent. I thought it was kind of, uh, uh, you know, whatever. Um, a friend of mine online, um, James Robichaux, takes issue with the use of the word MMT or the acronym MMT a lot. He, he thinks it's over-utilizing the word. So we're going to talk about that too. And I'm going to start with what happened with me and Joy and um, the attack dogs that flew around like those you, know, you almost hear the uh, wizard of us you see fly my pretties fly and out come the state by staters to tear us down tell us we don't know what we're talking about and oh it goes from we don't know what we're talking about once we prove we know what we're talking about and then it goes from we you know from that over to now you're just punching down on activists. And last check I had, folks, I'm an activist. And their group, their organization, has got more people paying attention to their state-by-state -state stuff. I assure you, it's sad but true. 
and they've got all kinds of colorful personalities putting on the red berets and all that other good stuff. And it's, they call us a cult, but you know, last check I had, there's no secret RP handshake. There's no secret, you know, maybe I'll get everybody to wear a scally cap. That'll be the new RP. We'll be uh, wearing scally caps for progress or some crazy nonsense like that, whatever, you know, to each turn. It's, it's a tough racket. Trying to get people to pay attention to things that are not clickbait is a real challenge. And what is really even more challenging is finding out that the average person isn't going to listen more than five minutes. That if it violates something they already know, they might not even give it three minutes. This is why TikTok is so uh, hot these days, because there's a lot of folks that just want to be entertained. They're not interested in learning. It's like a post-information society. It's almost like rejecting information, rejecting knowledge, um, a post-truth world, if you will. But I found over the years that nine times out of 10, when you're talking online, when you're doing a live stream, when you're doing a podcast, the audience you think you're talking to isn't the audience that you're actually talking to. It's not the audience that actually hears you more than anything. That was kind of a mind-blowing moment for me. You know, realizing that you could be engaging with somebody online and they're not really listening to you. They don't really care what you have to say. They're already thinking about what they're going to say and rebut to you. Okay. I'm sure you've had conversations with people where you know damn well they're not really listening to you. They're just sitting there tapping their fingers waiting for you to be done so that they can go ahead and say something. You, you know what I mean? They're not, it's not even penetrating the skull. So when you're leaving breadcrumbs for people, you're leaving breadcrumbs for them for the after party, you know, for when the other people come around to see this discussion. And, you know, I, you know, I was, I was going for my PhD and I remember learning uh, existentialism, objectivism for Ayn Rand. Cause I wanted to, you know, at the time I started going for my PhD, it was steeped in libertarian stuff. And I really wanted to dig in and, you know, but, um, you know, a lot of people don't realize smart, smart people don't realize most people. And I'm looking at you, Wesley, out there in the audience. Most people don't know who Hobbes is. Most people don't know who Robespierre is. Most people don't know uh, who, you know, what Lenin did or, or anything about Engels or Marx. Most people don't know anything about Toussaint Louverture. Most people have no concept of a lot of these people, history, these names, philosophy. Hell, there's a lot I don't know. A lot I don't know, right? I think that's probably the most I know is that I don't know. And so as I pursue knowledge, it's sometimes hard for me to also remember that everybody didn't like Dungeons and Dragons, that everybody doesn't like Warhammer 40,000, that everybody doesn't read history books just for the fuck of it, that most people don't enjoy listening to Tool over and over again for 10, 12-minute songs. But I do. 
Most people don't have water squirt out from under their tongue when Kirk Hammett hits the high note in the song Orion. And all of a sudden it just shoots out for no reason. Why'd that happen? I don't know. Mm. It's weird. It's like I was eating some citrus and all of a sudden saliva shoots out because of this one note every time I listen to the song Orion by Metallica. I don't understand. But there's other things when you get that thing, like when you're listening to Meshuggah and they're like, and you know, any second now, you're going to have the breakdown and your arm does a see just me doing that. I got goosebumps right there. All of that goosebumps right there on my arms, just doing the lead up to the breakdown in the song Phantoms by Meshuggah. Yeah, whatever. Right. It's nerdy shit. Shit that matters to me. But shit, most of you couldn't give a flying fuck about. Right. And so when we're talking about modern monetary theory, people, their fucking eyes glaze over. They have all kinds of insane stuff that goes on. Right. They got other things on their mind, whatnot. But these state by state, you know, folks that are trying to advance, uh, you know, this I, I can't even put words because it's not Medicare for all. It's not even Medicare for some. It's like they're crafting their own health care bills for every single state, all 50 states. There's not even one here. Here's the blueprint. Take this and, and run with it. It's like they all have to navigate every bit of their every state. And then when you tell them, listen, guys and gals. This is an important step you're about to take. You're trying to get people to buy into socialized medicine even if it's just even if not socialized even if it's simply just subsidized healthcare right if fucking bozos don't understand subsidizing isn't socialism but there's a lot of dumb people out there again and it's easy and believe me i feel it on the daily how much it annoys the shit out of me how dumb people can be right because they don't have a zeal to learn. They don't want to learn. Or maybe they do want to learn. They just don't care about this. But yet they care very much about health care. But they don't care about how to answer Hillary Clinton when she laughed about pie in the sky. They don't care to answer Hillary Clinton when she joned on Bernie about, well, how are you going to pay for it, Bernie? Right? See, the reason why Hillary Clinton could do that for the whole world to see is because she knew that you all, the average person, didn't understand what the fuck was going on. And because Bernie was too fucking scared to step up and take his economic advisor's advice, because he probably didn't listen because he was a full cup in his own way too. All those years of seeing it the same way he'd always said it. So he didn't listen to Stephanie. So he didn't go out there and use any of these terms. He didn't go out there and explain anything. So most of the Bernie Sanders time, the time we had with Bernie when he was large and in charge, he may run again. I don't know. Two times fail, third time's a charm. He won't ever follow through. If if the Dems jack him over again, he'll be fine with it. He'll endorse whoever they pick, and it'll be the end of the story. Okay? That's not even the point. Point is he had all this wind behind his sail, all this great information about modern monetary theory, and he never spoke about it. He never even talked about it in terms that were different. Didn't even talk about the fact that taxes literally aren't intended for spending. He never even tried to do any of it. Why is that? He's not an economist. 
But then again, his followers with bated breath wait on every word he says. And I love Bernie. I do. But they wait for every. And if he doesn't say MMT or if he doesn't say taxes don't fund better, if he, then you're wrong. You're just wrong. You don't know anything about nothing. And therefore, you're stupid, right? You, you just don't understand. Of course, we got to raise taxes to pay for these things. But we've seen through the pandemic that obviously every bit of that thinking was wrong, right? They never raised taxes, and yet they were able to pay for everything. They were able to throw money around like crazy. Not at us. Sadly, not at us. But, but the thing is this. If I talk to you about Medicare for all, most of you know what Medicare is. Most of you even have a good idea of what Medicare for all is. Most of you even have an idea of what improved national Medicare for all is. But when I tell you I'm going to give you CalCare or New York Care or whole Washington Care or Zimbabwe care or Belarus care or fucking mass care or Vermont care, Ver care, you know, Alabama care. Right. Right. I'm not doing stand up, folks. Alabama care is not a thing. It never will be. Okay. Um, but when you say that, that, that doesn't mean anything, right? So it can mean anything and it could mean nothing. Each one of these states has got to come up with their own plan. Now, why is that a problem? Well, see, I'm a, I'm a big guy when, and big and belly and big in ideas and big in seeing the big picture. Okay. So I'm kind of focused heavy on the fact that we've got like 10 different fights. I, I called this thing 99 problems. This stream is called 99 problems. I've got 99 problems. What anyway, I got 99 problems. I got more than that. But in this stream, we're going to talk about some of these problems. And, and, and the big one for me is that climate change is real. Climate change is something that uh, we all have known, and now things are getting really bad, and it's pretty obvious. You can even see some of this stuff, right? I mean, it's really starting to show its face. And, and we, we know we have a very, very short timeline to address that. And so one of the big things that turned me on so much to the Green New Deal back when it was first announced was that it handled holistically the problem of climate crisis. It handled sustainability of infrastructure. It handled fossil fuels. It handled what happens to the displaced workers from those dirty industries, right? Had a federal job guarantee. It had a just transition baked into it too. It also, because once you start doing that, you have to provide healthcare to those people. So all of a sudden, Medicare for all was part of the Green New Deal. And when you realize that, you say to yourself, huh, so I've got third party people coming at me saying, don't vote dumb, do this, do that, do the other. Oh, you're a shit lib if you do that. Oh, yeah. So we got the third party gang. That's one of your 99 problems. It's not that they're a problem. It's just something has to be dealt with, right? They don't believe they're all about building their party. So they're whirling dervishes in this little sphere outside of the real world. Then over here, you've got the state by staters. They're busy trying to get everybody all excited and running around. They're over here. Then you've got even the national Medicare for all folks. God love them. I'm part of that. But they're not looking at the Green New Deal either. 
They're not seeing the layer cake that Fadl Kaboob talks about. Layer cake, what does that mean? Let's quickly deal with that because people don't like words they don't understand, right? The layer cake is all those different programs baked into one cake so that we can survive climate change. So we can have health care, so we can have jobs. And so the, the people that will be laid off from closing down those dirty fuel companies have work and they stay whole and they resist moving into the 21st century with renewables. And they resist, they stop resisting because, well, it's not as bad as they thought. They're not going to lose everything. They have a just transition. You understand what I mean? Does that make sense? So when I think about this, I think about timelines. And I always say, okay, third-party people, I got an existential climate crisis, but you want to build a third party right now. How are you going to build that party? How many years? to Let's, let's look at, we got eight years to fix climate change. Not, not have an idea about it, but fix it. So, so we got eight years, climate crisis, eight years. How many years does it take you to build your third party? How many years does it take you to run enough candidates to overthrow every other candidate inside the Congress and Senate so that you can make valuable, you know, impact on, you know, bills? Because remember, eight years, climate crisis, right? Can you do that in eight years? If the answer is no, we're not going to survive your plan. Your plan doesn't keep us living. It doesn't do what we need it to do, if that makes sense. If that makes sense, it doesn't do what we need it to do. The flip side is, is that if you're going for just Medicare for all, who's fighting for the climate? Where's the climate push? You're over there. And what have you done? You've broken everyone off into state by state things about one thing, climate crisis. I mean, not, excuse me. I wish. <laughs> no, state, you're going to draft some fake legislation, something that doesn't exist specific to each state. And they're not going to talk to each other. There's no inputs, outputs, tools, techniques. There's no collaborative uh, price, you know, working out for uh, pricing to power for, you know, purchasing through the states. It, it, there's none of that. And quite frankly, most of the states in this country don't have the kind of initiative, ballot initiatives that they could do to even get this on the ballot. Okay. That would mean you would need your politicians to do it for you. You can't ballot initiative your way to state-based Medicare. You can't do it. Okay. So once we get past that, you have to ask yourself, okay, so how many years does it take for us to get state by state by state by state by state passed throughout the country? Right now, they're going to tell you, well, we're not looking to get everyone through the country. We're looking to get a couple states through and then that's going to create this windfall and it's going to force the federal government to do its bidding. Okay. So hypothetically, you just had CalCare yanked from the floor. The own bill, the uh, person that actually sponsored the bill couldn't even get it out for a vote. He pulled it himself. Okay. Um, you got a no vote in New York. Um, you've got no one really pushing it other than the activists really meaningfully in Washington. So timelines, eight years, let's get with it that's three states right there, maybe four if you count Vermont that it failed in. So now what do you do, right? Eight years. It doesn't work. The timeline doesn't work, all right? So you go back to national Medicare for all. And that's, that's an important thing, right? That's an important thing. 
And thank you, Catherine. I see you hanging in there. It's been a while. How are you doing? Um, so ultimately, uh, if you look at what I'm saying, and I really do hope you take the, the moment to think about what I'm talking about here. It's a simple Gantt chart. I wish I had a whiteboard. I draw the lines so you could see the timelines. You would understand. Third party, to get what you need done, it takes a lot of the very important people that you'd like to see involved in the push that I'm talking about. It takes them out of the game. They've got to focus on building those parties. Okay. Now, is it good to organize? God, I, if you've ever listened to anything I've said, I've been begging for us to organize beyond electoral politics. Why? We don't have time to build parties and we don't have time to revolt and rebuild the government in our own image. We don't have time for any of that. And I've said this before, I'm going to keep dropping this Michael Albert reference. Michael Albert is one of the leading voices in the anarchist movement. And even Michael Albert has said point blank, to survive climate crisis, we're going to need a more authoritarian approach up front. We're just simply going to need an authoritarian approach, unfortunately, to survive this. If you can find a way to Robert's rules our way through climate crisis, you knock yourself out. But that means you've got to include everybody that doesn't know what the hell they're talking about on top of it all, right? So you've got to educate. You've got to get the word out. You've got to spread the word. You've got to build momentum. And it takes a lot to build momentum. So just to build a basic movement, you've got to have a spark. You've got to have people committed. And how many people do you know of that really, really put it all on the line versus binge watching shit on Netflix? I mean, seriously, this is, I'm not being mean. I'm just being honest. That's what the 99 problems comes in. You've got to be honest. Folks that show up to these live streams, they say all kinds, oh, fraud squad, blah, blah, blah. All. But in reality, once they're done with it, they're like, hey, where's the party tonight, man? Let's go out and hang out. Hey, hey, you're going to go to the concert, man? Hey, why don't we go uh, play some beer pong or whatever, right? It's not, it's not going to get you the kind of organization you're looking for, okay? So we have to look at this as, eight years. We don't have to, we can all die or we can let the coastal regions get destroyed or we can let algae blooms come. We can let new viruses come out and not be ready for it. We can do that. That's, there's definitely a possibility, a probably a much greater possibility than any one of us are willing to acknowledge. But there's a tremendous possibility that we aren't successful and that really, really bad things happen. That's a real possibility. I mean, I always, whenever I write my stories, you know, my teacher, <laughs> I just tell you a story, a story, right? When I was in high school, I used to write these really, really graphic murder stories, honestly, really, really crazy, wild stuff. And for those of you who know, I was quite the druggie when I was in high school. So I had quite the imagination. And I wrote these horrible stories and they always had endings where somebody died and things like that. But that's really the real stuff here with, with climate crisis. You, you don't understand what I'm saying? It, it really is real. These are things that can really happen. And, and we have to be prepared for that. 
you know, they say, no, you can't mitigate your way out of this. No, you can't adapt climate change. This Once it starts happening, it's going to be pretty quick and pretty strong and, and pretty brutal. So that means that the time we do have left, even though the fossil fuel companies are blocking us from making noise, uh, people like Peter Kalmus are out there really doing God's work, really out there with, uh, you know, Extinction Rebellion and other groups like that pushing for this. Even that is missing the point because they're not addressing healthcare because, I mean, they're very focused on the climate, right? So the Green New Deal bundles all this together in one fell swoop. It's one bundle. It's a framework for a series of projects that roll up to a program called the Green New Deal. And, you know, I, I, I find it fascinating what I'm saying right now, if any one of you thinks what I'm saying right now is in any way, shape, or form trolling, if you think what I'm saying right now is in any way, shape, or form punching down on another activist or anything like that, well, I don't know what to tell you. It's, it's simply not true, okay? What I'm doing is I'm describing a very important set of parameters to address a large number of problems in one bang because the timeline is so short. I'm a project manager by trade. This is what I do, period. And it's not a skill that is rampant in this particular movement. Most active, many people I know are not educated in the least. A lot of people dropped out of high school. Life is hard, folks. I don't know if you realize this or not. But life's a son of a bitch. And thank you very much, Virginia. But the truth is, is that if we could get people to stop just waiting to speak and realize what are the requirements for our survival, don't, don't get into what you wish and what you think. Just talk about the requirements. Let's let the requirements drive us to our solutions. Let's not solution the problem until we've identified the requirements. This is going to probably sound crazy for some of you guys that never worked in a software program where you had to define your requirement set. You had to define the user experience. You have to define the look and feel. You have to define the data sets. You got to normalize the data. You've got to do all the integrations. You've got to understand all the interfaces. This is heavy duty shit, right? And if you've never been trained on it, it's a lot to learn. So when you do have these complicated conversations about a Green New Deal, about a job guarantee, about a just transition, about all these factors that play into needing Medicare for all as part of that, if people are still waiting to talk and they're not listening, everything's missed. And if we keep running off in orphan politics, I'm going to do my little program. You do your little program. And maybe if at the end of the timeline we meet, maybe we can all survive. Can you imagine? I imagine this. It, there was a movie called 2012. And I wanted to pull the video up, but I don't want to get dinged for a copyright infringement. But there's a scene in the movie 2012 where this poor Indian guy who identified the, the problems that were going on saw the horrible effects of climate change that were coming their way, okay? He is standing on the beach with his child and his wife, 
and he gets on the phone and he's calling me. He's like, Hey, you never sent the, uh, rescue copters or whatever. And as you look, there's this wall of water getting ready to crash him. And I mean, again, chills. I wish you could see this video. Okay. So with that in mind, each of these things leads to calamity, if not addressed. They're not the kind of thing that you can just ignore. You know, it's like Arnold Schwarzenegger. It's not a tumor, right? Now, maybe it is a tumor, right? I just found I had this lump. I was all freaked out. I thought it was going to end up being cancer. It turns out to be that I've got a shitty, horribly infected tooth because I just didn't have the cash to get it removed. And I've got another one back here that I found I bit down in the crown. Oh, my God. Horrible pain, right? That's real. That's got to happen quickly, but I ain't got the money, right? So what do you do? So all these things come together. Everybody's heads are spinning. This is why you've got to narrow the scope, the Green New Deal. It's not because it's the best. It's because it encompasses everything. And it's because with such little time and people having so little bandwidth, attention span, intellect, whatever, the other stuff never gets talked about. That never gets talked about, ever. And so you keep thinking, like, I don't go on other people's shows and stuff like that. Because I have an ego. If I never had to do another video again, it would be too soon. I would love to not do it, honestly. I mean, I enjoy talking. I'm an activist, so I want to talk. And since I can't get out of my house, this is a great way to talk to you guys. And I do love you all, so it's nice to be able to interact. One of these days, I'll bring in more people to talk with me so that it's not just Steve talking. But uh, for right now, I, you know, I think to myself, if I don't find a way to get people to realize how important it is to bundle this stuff into a Green New Deal, in the back of my head, I'm panicking because I recognize the herd is very challenging to direct. I'm recognizing the average alt media group, the minute I get done with the interview on their show, will go right back to the taxpayer dollar. Or we'll bring on the state by staters and treat them as if everything they just said was 100% right without any pushback at all, because it sounds so good. Yeah, we'll just do it at the States. No, no energy at the national. We'll just do it at the state. No problem. Let me tell you something. I'm going to get wonky for a minute. So you guys can kind of get the feel for why this is so goddamn important. Okay. For every person that ignores the modern monetary theory discussion, the MMT, right? The MMT. The conversation, the framework, the, the way, the lens to view the economy. For every person that ignores that and then goes back to sleep, starts talking about my hard-earned tax dollars and all the other shit, that eight-year timeline looks like a 40-year timeline. It looks like it's huge. It looks like it's insurmountable because you could never tax your way to a Green New Deal ever. There's just no fucking way. There's no way a green new deal is going to be very, very, very expensive. Okay. It's going to be extremely expensive. And unfortunately right now, neither the Democrats nor the Republicans are showing any inclination to solve any of our problems 
Instead, they're going to get us knee deep in another war, probably. They'll keep saber rattling or dumping stuff over there into Ukraine. Hell, we would rather demonize China for their one belt, one road initiative than learn from what they're doing to increase their supply chains to make things work better. That's what we're up against. We're not up against a group of Democrats and Republicans that are willing to do what must be done. So how do we get past that? How do we get past that? Vote for whoever the hell you want to vote for, please. I would never, you know, I'm not here to shame you, but I am here to say that if your vote doesn't get us a Green New Deal, you were ineffective. Your efforts, your style, your thing, your thought, your desire, ineffective. I can't help it. You judge it by the results. You know? So, you know, I I love the fact that AOC, Markey, um, even John Yarmouth, um, you know, who we've talked to on Macron Cheese before, um, you know, they, they, they've stopped talking about a Green New Deal. They have. They've stopped talking about it. And, um, you know, Yarmouth, you know, in a private chat with Yarmouth and then publicly on Macron Cheese, you know, John said flat out, he says, I hate to say it to you. He goes, I was a big sponsor of that bill. I really appreciate the Green New Deal. He said, but uh, you know what? There's no energy for it. There's just no energy for it. Said, what? Really? Yes, there's no energy for it at all. And so, you know, Stephanie Kelton often talks about, we don't need to find the money. We need to find the votes, right? And so you realize that Sadly, the vast majority of both Democrats and Republicans aren't going to vote for this. They're just not. And so you say to yourself, well, then we're screwed. Let's just all go to bed and die, right? Well, no. All you got to do is take a very, very short trip back to the 70s. Very short trip. And look at Richard Nixon. Richard Nixon, Tricky Dick, a.k.a. the formerly most corrupt president, dead president of these United States. I am not a crook. That guy, right? Richard Nixon passed the EPA. I bet you there was a lot of naysayers saying, I bet you can't get that through the Republicans or whatever. Richard Nixon did it. And the reason he did it was because the people outside of the parties took to the streets, made demands. You know, when Martin Luther King led all those people onto the mall. He didn't sit there and work with the Democratic Party and say, hey, yo, uh, you know, white moderates, come on out here and help me with civil rights. No, he did this outside of the party. I'm not sure why this is remotely objectionable. I'm not sure why anybody even has that much pushback. I don't even know why. When I say this, it's perfectly reasonable. Let's do it at the MLK way. Will that make it easier to swallow what I'm saying? If I say, let's do it like MLK, as opposed to, let's not do it electorally, let's do it outside the party. What if I just say, yeah, let's do it like MLK? Would that help? Would people not be so defensive? Maybe, I don't know. But all I can tell you 
is that whenever you do something within the party, it gets co-opted by the party. Okay. You know, and, and if you think I'm lying, let me let me tell you how bad it really is. So I I I you know, I, I was not a big jump on the Trump thing because I realized that Trump would never exist if the Obamas of the world had not drill baby drilled and done all the things slow rolled the recovery he could have done it in spades to make that recovery happen big time he did not it was the worst recovery of any depression ever like his his efforts were horrific okay and because he was so bad not just because he was black although i'm sure there was a lot of racists because you remember the birther crap that Hillary Clinton started, by the way. It wasn't Trump. It was Hillary. I know that's hard to take, but that's your vote blue. Hillary started the birther stuff. Okay. Trump just took it the next level. But when you look at that, you realize Trump was manufactured by the Clintons in large part. The Democrats, right? The Democrats. They were the heart and soul of the Democratic Party. Everybody was going to vote for the most qualified candidate in the lifetime of all lifetimes, Hillary Clinton. It's the most qualified period bar none, right? Whatever. Trump beater, okay? And I didn't really focus that much on Trump because I was very upset at what the Democrats did to Bernie Sanders. I felt like that cost them my uh, attention. I felt like that cost them far more than just an election. I felt like their naked rigging of the primary in 2015 and 16 was their undoing. Trying to get air back in the tires, trying to get fuel back in the engine, trying to get the engine to start back up for his 2020 run in a pandemic, no less, seemed far-fetched to me. I didn't see it, but damn it, if the energy wasn't there. And Bernie jumped out the huge leads. He should have been the nominee. But alas, the Democratic Party killed that. It sent all their little people out there to destroy Bernie Sanders and install Joe Biden. Joe Biden, who hadn't even registered a blip. Okay. All this back and forth about electoral politics, and you've got no bills to show for it. You've got nothing to show for it, folks. Zero. Nothing. That's not to say don't do it. It's not to say fight for the most progressive. It's to say you got nothing to show for it. And so, with that in mind, what is missing? You voted. You voted. You got your person in office and nothing happened. What are we missing in this picture? All I can think of is pressure. All I can think of is people working together outside the party to force them to do our bidding. That's it. That's the only thing I can come up with because you already did your part. You voted. You got your guy in there and he has been a miserable failure. A miserable failure. And why is that? Because three quarters of the brunchers are back to brunch. They're not.
focused on a Green New Deal. Or as Nancy Pelosi called it, the Green Dream or whatever. That green thingy. The green man Alishi with a two-pronged crown, right? You got nothing. You got pictures of her eating her, her sherbet out of her Viking sub-Zs. Sure, that's a good Democrat bid. Hey, show us the, how much was the sub-Zs? Enough to fix climate change, probably. So I say this to you so that you understand. I don't care what party you're in. Republicans are going to need to survive climate change. Their children are going to need to survive climate change. You are going to need to survive climate change. Your grandchildren are going to need to, and your children are going to need to, and hopefully your dogs and cats do as well. But alas, your voted elected representatives without pressure, and we're not putting pressure on them, you see horrible people defending the party without listening to the words. You remember, they're waiting to talk. They're not listening to what you're saying. They're not listening. They're waiting to defend the party. They're waiting to defend their idea. They're not hearing anything about what you're saying. You could be the most coherent, logical person laying it out like a project manager, step by step by step, and they won't hear you because they're going to defend the Democrats. And it's like, look, I want to live. Your weird love affair with that party be damned. I want to live. And I want my kid to live. Whether you want to fellatio the party or whether you want to pass a Green New Deal. Now, why do I care? You could have an entire thing of Republicans in office. And I would still say the same thing. What they don't want is they don't want unrest. Not the kind of unrest that it would require. Okay. Now, sounds kind of weird with the January 6th trial going on right now. But what did they do? You know, I, I got to be honest with you. I hand waved that whole thing away. I didn't give it any truck because, again, back to what I was saying, neoliberalism begets desperation. Okay. Neoliberalism intentionally, intentionally takes away from you and I, crushes us, and then the people up above, rebuy things that we lose like our homes as we foreclose and all the rest and then they lease them back to us at a higher price and when we can't pay you feel another crush you crushes again and they buy it up again and then we all of a sudden that weird spike the the, the income inequality all that stuff it's like what's happening i didn't see it coming what happened what is this well you were too busy defending the Democratic Party instead of holding them accountable. You can be a Democrat. You can vote for them. It doesn't preclude you from being worthful and holding them accountable. And what I mean, you can't hold them accountable by yourself. I'm not going to vote for them. Right? But what you can do is you can unite with other activists, other organizations that are activist-driven, collectively come up with a plan where you become very, very difficult to deal with. Where you can make the important things that you care about well known. Because when you block traffic in front of the CNN building, 
or when you block traffic in front of the Federal Reserve, or you block traffic in front of the State House or the Capitol or the White House, cameras come. And when cameras come, signs are seen. And when signs are seen, people go, oh, what the hell? What's going on there? Okay. And now all of a sudden, what are they going to do? You're, you've got your arms in those pipes. You're chained to each other. They can't break the chain free. You guys have blocked all the traffic. You're sitting still. They lift you. They got to lift everyone. But they can't. Now we got a situation, right? But it all depends on how serious you take survival. Right? If it's not a big deal, if it's sort of a passing fancy in between Netflix binges, then this is probably not going to interest you. However, if you realize that these candidates and your government will not do for you just by being voted into office, if you realize that they're not leaders, but they're public servants, and they should be treated as public servants there to do our bidding, not the bidding of Wall Street. See, Occupy broke up before their job was done. We need to get the band back together. I think to myself, when that wall of water comes, and when I think about the viruses coming out of the permafrost, and when I think about the drought, and I think about the starvation, and I think about the wars that will be waged as people migrate from their territory into someone else's territory, and they start defending their private property. What a glorious world that will be, right? So I hope that we realize that without attacking a Green New Deal as the primary driver for moving forward and without realizing that vote, 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 do your voting, goddamn, do whatever you have to do, vote and vote and vote. But when it comes time, know that they're not, if you can show me where bills are passed based on that, I'm all ears, right? Biden could have gotten rid of the filibuster, didn't do it. Biden could have stacked the courts to make sure that there wasn't an issue with Roe v. Wade. He didn't do it. Ruth Bader Ginsburg could have retired. Obama could have appointed someone. Didn't do it. They could have appointed someone during a recess session. Didn't do it. Okay. Everything that they could do, Biden could do executive orders, hasn't done it. Why not? Is it because I'm just a bad guy that's talking about the Democrats? Or is it because I'm a smart guy that's saying, guys, Doing the same thing over and over again, expecting different results, just ain't working for you, is it? Just ain't working for you. If you can show me it's working, I'm all ears. But if you can't, if you can't, if you can't, I would respect you a lot more if you would acknowledge that what I'm saying is not some crackpot, wacky thing that's denigrating the Democrats, right? I would hope you would do that. If you don't do that, then you and your God can talk at night and make peace with one another. But history tells me a deep understanding of the sociopolitical struggles that have gone on into making the country what it is today 
tells me that if we play the patsy, if we play beta male with our government and we allow them to tell us what's possible versus us tell them what we demand, we're going to get nothing and we're going to keep getting nothing. Kirsten Cinema, Joe Manchin, people like that, they could be protested heavily. Legally, not violently, but pain in the acidly, we could be doing it. We're not. We're not. Okay. So what I'm hoping is, is that we find what Bernie Sanders said to us and take it for real. Not me, us, right? Not me, us. I'm going to bring this up here. This is, I don't, but I tell you what, I would like to. Vivek Chibber, Class Matrix. I'm, I'm reading, I wish I had the book near me. It's across the room over there. I'm reading something like U Organizing Unions Via Class Struggle by Joe Burns um, right now. And I really hope um, that, you know, I'm able to have him on soon. But in any event, I want to hide this for a minute and get back to the subject at hand. Green New Deal isn't going to happen just by voting your way there. It's going to require us organizing and organizing outside of the party to make demands so that party bosses don't get to shut us down. Party bosses don't get to tell us, oh, well, that's outside of what our rules say. Well, our, our protocols or Robert's rules of order say that you can't do that. And I'm sorry, you're not one of the voting members. You haven't been a part of the party for three years. You didn't do this. You didn't do that. No, you're a human being and you're organizing outside the party. And you're telling them, just like Russia, I want you to know something. Russia did something really important. As much as I don't like Russia invading Ukraine, as much as I don't like the U.S. involvement with the EU and uh, the World Bank and the IMF and what they've done with Ukraine with structural adjustments and loans and so forth, what Russia did was they showed that dollar hegemony is, is whatever, that they can survive any kind of uh, sanctions the U.S. puts on them. Why? Because they are sovereign creators of their own fuel and energy. They have energy sovereignty. They have food sovereignty. The only thing they don't have is some of the high-tech sovereignty, and they can get that from their sister country right next door in China, okay? So, but what they did was they showed the U.S. can't use dollar imperialism to block them. And I'm hoping that smaller countries band together and realize that dollar hegemony doesn't need to enslave them anymore for us to have low prices. We need to do the things we need to do as a country, okay, to be self-sufficient. But predating on all these countries, creating more and more and more energy drag as we suck the South, the global South up, creating more and more carbon, uh, you know, massively abusing our available uh, space on the, the limits of carbon use. We're, we're screwed. So there's so much going on here, right? It's not just an easy thing. And unfortunately, the average person, and I want to give you guys kudos. There's 55 watching. I've been doing this for 51 minutes. Scally caps off to you guys for hanging in there with me. 
Most people won't do that though. Most people, they're casual. They click on it, find out, oh, you didn't say what I want to hear and they're moving on. But the truth is, is that we've got to get used to having some complex conversations. But then once we leave an area where we can conveniently have complex conversations, we've got to have ways to say these things in short, easy to digest bites for the rank and file Rachel Maddow kind of voter, for the kinds of people that literally don't pay attention. We've got to find a way. We've got to find a way to message to them as well. Now, this brings me to the next problem, the MMT problem. See, the buzzword MMT, modern monetary theory, okay? None of the developers of MMT, um, you know, named it MMT. It was actually coming from a comment section in a Bill Mitchell blog post years and years ago. MMT, as we know, it used to be called Mosler Economics, okay? MMT rolls off the tongue a little easier than Mosler Economics. But as it's been developed, and lots and lots of different developers have done this stuff, you know, it's become this rather large body of knowledge. And it describes inflation. It describes, you know, the limits of spending, it describes resource utilization, it describes sectoral balances, okay? It takes pieces of post-Keynesian theory. It takes pieces of functional finance and Ava Lerner. It takes Hyman Minsky's background. It takes Michael Koleski's background. It takes all these different things, rolls them into one. And it provides a step-by-step -step plumbing guide for how federal finance works from A to Z. And it explains if you do this and you do why, things are going to go poorly. Or if you do this and you do why, you'll get this thing. Oftentimes we say Biden has done a really shitty job. Look, the inflation's up, blah, blah, blah. But remember, one person's spending is another person's income. So is Biden really doing bad? Well, he's doing shitty for me. But he might be doing really good for someone. I wonder who's making out really well right now. With inflation up, where's all that money go? Hmm. Is it regular people? Is it Main Street? Is it helping the poor? Is it fixing a Green New Deal? Hmm, no. I think we've seen that corporations are raking in huge record profits. So MMT talks about all these things. It gives you the framework to analyze. You're not caught off guard when the Fed says they're going to raise interest rates you know what raising interest rates means. Raising interest rates is basic income for the rich. That's the short version. The long version is, well, when banks, central banks are transacting between other banks and payments clear, billions of payments a night, tons and tons. I mean, every time you send money somewhere, there's something going on in the bank. Well, when you go to send money from A to B, there has to be reserves in there to A to B. If you don't have reserves, you have to buy more reserves through the open market, through the overnight window. And there's a price to pay for reserves. Okay, This is stuff you don't care about. You don't need to know about. Why do you want to know this stuff? I mean, I could talk about it, 
But most people don't want to know this. They don't want to know this. Okay. They don't want to know it. So suffice it to say, raising interest rates, which is their targeted way of dealing with inflation, is simply pumping more money to the rich and making it harder for you and I to survive. Because they figure if they create unemployment, if they kill the economy, then the price gouging will go down. Rather than create a law that prevents price gouging, they would rather kill the economy. Okay? Now, is MMT important? Well, I just sat there and broke down interest rates for you. I broke down how federal, well, I, I've done it so many times, I lose track of when I did, when I didn't, what I do, what I don't. The fact is, is that this is all very, very important stuff to know that the federal government itself never borrows money ever, ever. Like literally, it never borrows money ever, ever. It never borrows money. Okay. Never. It creates money. And then after it creates money and it spends it into existence, after it, post-ant, whatever, it then sells bonds. Why does it do this? Well, because the rich want their basic income. If, if we were have a zero interest rate policy, now what does that mean? Overnight window, zero, never costs any money. They just, just does it, okay? What would happen? Well, where would people find the safest investment in the world? The, the treasury bond, you know, where, where would they, where would they find that? They wouldn't, right? So having a safe investment is very important for business, for pensions, for older retiring people, you know, for, for people that are living in volatile times that want to ensure that they have something. Yeah, the, the bonds are a really good bet. They don't they don't bounce. Government checks don't bounce. So um, thank you very much for the five dollars. Read this. MMT equals financial engineering for the working class, not just the magic exclusively reserved to the bourgeois anymore. I like that. I like that. Um so in any event, if you think about what I'm saying. If I tell you that I'm talking about interest rates, you can look that up. But if you look up interest rates, you're going to find the old shit, the Mancus, all the, all the old economics, the Paul Krugman world. They're going to give you the wrong answer. Go to Wikipedia. You're suddenly going to get some trader from Wall Street explaining interest rates. They're lying because this is how they make their money. But when I tell you MMT and I say bonds, or I say MMT and I say interest rates, all of a sudden Warren Mosler's name pops up. All of a sudden, Bottle Kaboob, Pavlina Chernova, Bill Mitchell, right? Stephanie Kelton, Randall Ray, Scott Fulweiler, Mark Forstater, Matt Forstater, excuse me, God, forgive me, Matt. Stephen Hale, Eric Tamoyne. All these names pop up, right? But they don't pop up if you just say economics and interest rates. All of a sudden you get Paul Krugman or something like that. 
So MMT, for those that don't like hearing the word MMT because they don't feel it addresses the problem, it's a category error. What we're dealing with here is something that we, as people, we like to logically group things. We like to understand where they fit. We like to understand systems. I'm not going to sit there and talk to you about an operating system when the Apple OS is so much different than the Windows OS. OS, what does that mean? Are you talking about my Cisco interface for my router and switch? Are you talking about my Android device that's using, you know, whatever? Or are you talking about, so a description, it's a description. It, we're talking about modern monitor, MMT. And so when you look that up, you'll get a bunch of the naysayers. And anytime you see somebody say the problem with MMT is the thing that they don't say is that they don't understand it. That's what the problem is that they don't understand. That's the problem, right? So with that in mind, I tell you this, words have meanings and in different frames, different settings, talking about MMT, it's probably not the right way to go, right? I wouldn't sit there and talk to Fadl Kaboob and say, well, you know, MMT says. Now, if you listen to my most recent interview with him, you'll hear me talking about the IMF, the World Bank. I'll, I'll talk about, you know, what happens if a, uh, a developing country doesn't have enough U.S. dollar reserves to make its foreign exchange payments, you know, as, as they do trade with other What happens when their debt is called on and they don't have enough reserves in that foreign currency that they owe money to? What happens and all this stuff? You see, it's very specific then. We're talking about a specific issue because you've come, you open the book. The book of Fadal and I in that thing is MMT. We know we're talking MMT. So I don't need to say it because it's like the macro level of this micro level topic within the macro world. <laughs> God, what oh, did I just say that? Oh my God. I can't believe I just said that. Yeah, well, I said that. So with that in mind, I think it's very important that we all talk to one another, especially you guys that are newish to MMT. You folks that are newish to MMT need to be around people that are oldish in MMT and can share that knowledge. Kind of like, you know, I, I tried to build Real Progressive. Sadly, it hasn't done the way I want it to. Um, but I tried to build things that I learned from Alcoholics Anonymous in terms of building community and trying to build mentors, aka sponsors and things like that. So that each one teach one was our motto. Uh, each one reach one was our motto, things like that. Unfortunately, people are private people. They don't tend to, you know, get together the way I feel like they should. They don't feel that I'm an old timer. It's my responsibility to bring along the newcomer. They don't have that same kind of uh, whatever that I was hoping for. It's my failure. I'm sure it's something I did wrong that made it so that it didn't happen that way. But conceptually, I liked it. You know, conceptually, I think it's a great idea. I know it worked, saved my life. Um, but I think that we need to teach each other. I think we need to have these conversations with friendlies that are just getting their feet off, you know, feet under them so that they can become part of that army to get the word out there. Right. And again, you know, some of these fights on this MMT side of the world, some of these debates, these discussions, I've had these fights for 15 years. 
I've done the dance back and forth with the libertarian. I've done the dance back and forth with the vote blue, no matter who's sycophant that tries to tell me, no, no, you're full of shit. Taxes do pay for roads and libraries. What are you talking about? I think, oh, you so enlightened me. Thank you for your great wisdom. Um, and, and then the Republicans, of course, you just want free stuff, man. You know, you, you get the point. It's the same shit, different day. So getting through to them is going to be a challenge without having community built, without having each other work together to teach each other. Ask the questions you don't understand offline in these chats. Ask them if I can't get you the answer off the top of my head and I can't find a link to something you can read or watch. I have will make whatever time necessary to get in touch with one of the experts to answer your question. Okay. It's not just me though. It's a, it's a movement now. Okay. It's a movement of people smaller than we'd like it to be simply because, well, let's be fair. A lot of the folks doing this stuff are academics. They like to break out some high level, you know, philosophy, right? They want to break out these really lofty ideas. And that's cool when you're with other people that are reading Hegel and stuff like that. The average person's not reading Hegel. The average person's like, what do you mean taxes don't find spending? What the, what, what are you talking about, dude? But let me tell you about a Hegelian dialectic. What? I, I mean, seriously, like you can't take people to another problem, right? You can't, can't, can't go too far, man. You just got to say, hey, you know, the thing about our country is it's kind of like, you know, a, a baseball game or a hockey game or a football game. You know, when it issues tickets, it issues dollars by spending them into the economy. It takes those dollars back like a baseball ticket, but it doesn't need the ticket. It created the ticket. It tears the ticket up and it's done. Your U.S. dollar comes back as a tax. It's done. They spend more digital dollars into the economy. They swirl around. They come back as a tax. They rip it up like it's a seat at the Capitals game or the you know Nationals or Commanders game. They rip it up and it's done. You could tell my Washington bias here, right? I just realized that. Um, but it's simple stuff like that. It's framing these things in a way that people can understand. But the, the most challenging part of this is that most people don't ask questions. They just walk away. You know, they just walk away. So the other thing that I think is interesting is people conflate finance with macroeconomics. See, finance is what happens outside of the government. It's what happens in the private sector. People acquire money, they acquire capital, they acquire things and they want to invest and and that's finance and that's outside. That's outside. That's going to banks, that's doing different things. Federal government doesn't have to do that stuff. See, you're so used to when you look in your bank account and see dollars in your account, these numbers, that, that that's where the dollars come from, right? But really what happens is, is when Congress signs that law into existence, that law creates money in and of itself because money is a law, right? It's not spontaneous barter. It's not some illusory, some, some wild thing that, you know, we just all agree upon. See. 
It's not just some social construct we all agree upon. Why is that? I know a lot of people like to say that. It probably feels good to say that too. But the thing is, is that the dollar in the United States is a law. And the tax is a law. And you're needing that money. It comes as a direct result of the imposition of that tax. But the tax isn't used to buy anything. Just like when you cash in your ticket to the concert, they don't stash those concert tickets and re we'll, we'll go and redistribute concert tickets, man. That's not how it works. They rip it up and then they print new tickets. They're printing tickets. Oh my God. They print tickets for the next show. But for that show, you cashed in your ticket and you sit in that seat or you stand in the audience or whatever your experience is going to be. But the ticket itself is irrelevant. It's, it's, it's a law though, to get the seat, you must have a ticket and the ticket costs a certain amount of money. Well, same thing with dollars. It's not going to be respent. For those of you who are weird and geeky and wonky, the idea of the velocity of money, right? They see the velocity of a dollar is one because it's spent one time by the federal government, one and only one. It does its thing in the economy. And then when somebody tax, you know, pays a tax for that, that tax comes back and it's gone, period. Trash, just, just the ticket ripped, right? It's not repurposed. It's not reused. It's not, we'll give it to poor people. Oh my God, if Bush didn't, you know, raid social security or if Bush didn't create so many war planes or Bush, we didn't spend so much money on the war. We would have more of these tickets to sell or to take tickets to ride, tickets to buy, tickets, 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 right? It's, it's really a fundamental idea that it's a law. It's a unit of account. It's an inch. It's a pound. I say this all the time. Uh, here, let's pull this up. Thank you so much, by the way. Um, the bourgeois issues themselves credit based on future earnings, basically no different than public deficit spending. Okay. I buy that. Um, so I want you, <laughs> Paul, you said something great here. I want to, this is actually spectacular what you just said. And I don't think people realize this, what I'm about to say anyway, about what, what, uh, Paul just said, because I think it's one of the most important things a lefty can understand. Okay. And that is this war is profit. The military industrial complex is a very privileged receiver of the first dollar spent by the government. Okay. So when the government, I want you to think like a drug dealer for just a minute. Okay. You're down in Columbia, your guys were out there in the field picking the poppies and whatever, the coca plants and whatnot, bring it all. And man, they're like hands are sticky and they lick it. It's like, mm, nummy, whatever. Right? They're like playing with the stuff and, and they go and they make coke right there and man this shit is like uh, really kick-ass it's nice brown whatever fresh out of the fresh out of the plant and then all of a sudden it gets shipped somewhere and when it gets shipped somewhere some cat goes hey all right get the cut so they break out the white powder and they mix it up with the coke now all of a sudden it's been stepped on right now you had a, a 
pound of Coke or whatever, right out of the, the key, right out of the, you know, the main drag, right out of the freaking jungles of Colombia. Now it ends up in Miami and some cat in a hotel is sitting there mixing it with this white powder. All of a sudden that one pound or that one kilo becomes two kilos because the cut added to it steps on it and it dilutes it, right? This is that whole dilution thing, right? Well, it's sort of like that with money, sort of. When I spend that money as a government onto my military, a couple things are at play there. Number one, the rank and file Democrats, the rank and file Republicans, none of them will ever push back on military Keynesianism. In other words, counter-cyclical spending directly on the military, right? We're in a downturn economy. What is the one thing that you can always count on our government doing? Going to war. Because nobody's going to complain when you spend. They're going to put the red, white, and blue on. They're going to wave their flag. They're going to be all patriotic and whatnot. And so what do you got to do? What, what are you going to do with that, right? You spend money to Halliburton. You spend money to Boeing. You spend money to all these different military industrial complex uh, you know, contractors, these big mega companies. And what do they do? They pay for the raw materials to build the planes. That money gets out into the economy. They pay the employees and the engineers and the, you know, all the uh, people that are building the stuff. They pay them. That money gets out that way. So what started happening? Back, I, it's probably happened way, way long ago. But I remember back during the Tip O'Neill era and, 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 you know, the Reagan era and stuff like that, that they started spreading the production of our military equipment throughout the 50 states. So that each state got a taste. If you remember the base closings back in the day that they would do, that, well, we got to cut the budget back. We're going to trim the bases. We're going to shut this base down. We're going to, right? Aries would freak out. Don't take away our base. Oh my God, that's money. That's money coming into our state. That's tax revenue. That's this, that's that, that's the other. You know what? Normally I wouldn't pay this any mind. Leap heard. I'm going to put you up here in just a minute. We're going to talk about the thing that you put up there. We're going to talk about that here in a minute. Um, but anyway, point is, is that the money gets spent and then the first person pays a tax on it. Each transaction, there's a tax that goes on and that money goes like this. And eventually it shrinks out to the edges. It's sent back as a tax again. And then new money has to be spent into the economy or the economy starts drying up, right? So what do they do? Whenever the economy's dried up, they start a war. They, they invest in some military thing. They drum up a cold war so that they can buy all these things to prepare for the cold war. You would think we would be able to do that for infrastructure. You would think we could do that for education. You would think that we could do that for healthcare. You would think we could do it for a green new deal. The problem is, is that us being in precarity serves a number of very, very important roles for capital, right? Capital needs to be able to purchase labor at a price that it wants to pay. Not where one where labor can dictate the terms. 
So in order for that scenario to play out, there has to be a scarcity of dollars. There has to be a lot of effort put, emphasis put on debt borrowing, borrowing people, you and I, not the country, but you and I borrowing money, okay? Because the more debt we're in, the more we have to go to work. The more we have to go to work, the more these companies can say, oh, there's enough people out there that we can hire and we can keep wages low. And that's the game, okay? That's the game. So as I'm looking at this, it's very, very important. Very, very important. Wait, 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 let's see, sector about... Yes, sectoral balances. Yeah, I, we did that. We had uh, Ellis on five years ago, six years ago. That was a long time ago. I forget how long I've been doing this. <laughs> we had Ellis on way, way back in the day, and he did a whiteboard version of it. There are many, many versions of sectoral balances. This is one of the accounting identities. It talks about you have, um, and I'm going to tell you all, sectoral balances. Uh-oh, what's going on with my... Oh, I froze for a second. Sectoral balances is a very important part of understanding the economy. It judges the public debt. It judges private debt. And it looks at the balance of payments for imports, balance of payments being imports, exports, and other demand leakages. And when you look, I think I actually have, I think I actually have this. Yes, I do. So here's a picture of the sectoral balances that Catherine was talking about. And you'll notice that there are three different colors there. One is public, one is private debt, and the other is rest of world. Okay. And this is old. This is, I think it goes up to like 2015, 26. It's, it's old. It doesn't have enough information for you to use it for right here, right now. But suffice it to say, you can see that whenever the government spends, there's an equal and opposite effect on the other side. When the government cuts back and goes in, to surplus, that means that it's deleted more money from the economy than it's put in. Okay. That's when we start looking at recessions and depressions and things like that. That's when the global financial economy uh, crisis, I should say, starts happening. Okay. Is that when we reduce spending, private credit has dried up because everybody is tapped out and we are a net importer, meaning that we're sending money out. All of a sudden, we end up in recessionary times. And if it keeps going, it could become depression times, okay? So that right there, sectoral balances. Um, Ellis did a great job of uh, putting that out there uh, years ago. You can look on our uh, YouTube channel and find it, I'm sure. Uh, Ellis, it just, you know, just to be fair, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to air dirty laundry, but Ellis and I stopped doing our show years ago. And haven't spoken in years, and I don't suppose that's going to change anytime soon for a variety of reasons. Should I be pushed against the wall? I do have receipts, but we're not going to go there. We're just going to skip on down the road and thank old times for what they were and uh, embrace new times for what they are. Um, but I'm going to go back up here. There was a post that I wanted to bring up, okay? And, and here it is. So uh, Leopard said they have to keep the petrodollar propped up and used for dollar trading pairs. Problem is it's all unraveling. I want to say this. Years ago, during the Bretton Woods um, Accord, they created a, a de facto dollar standard throughout the world. As part of the goal was to provide global stability and to make it so that um, countries weren't using 
foreign exchange wars. And we talked a little bit about this actually with Fadl Kaboob. If y'all want to check out my, uh, not this past Saturday's uh, uh, macro and cheese, but the week before, uh, we talked about the unholy trinity and the IMF, the World Bank, and um, God, my nose is itching. Sorry, folks. Um, IMF, World Bank, and the uh, uh, World Trade Organization. And we talked about how they, they operate. It's very, very important. But if you think about this, okay, the idea of the petrodollar was that all oil transactions would be conducted in U.S. dollars. Well, anytime dollars are ubiquitous, and just like a tax in the United States, you, you must pay your taxes in U.S. dollars, right? Well, they priced oil in U.S. dollars. Now, you see with Russia, Russia went ahead and said, yeah, you know what? We're going to sell our oil and you must buy it in rubles, period. Now, obviously they cave. They still have their mind in the wrong place with the gold, blah, blah, blah. But the point is, is that they, they knew the deal. Once you demand payment in your currency, there's nothing you can't handle within your currency because now those people need your currency to be able to buy your gas. To be able to do that, they have to do something to provide you something of value in trade that you would want. And with Russia missing out on the semiconductor side, that's that's how they did it. You know, hey, bottom line, you want to do business with us. You want to get fuel from us. Well, you're going to have to buy it in rubles. And if you want to do it in rubles, then you're going to have to provide something we want to buy in rubles like semiconductors. So all of a sudden. Russia showed how it's done. I hate to say it like that's not like a praise for Russia. It's not a down, just the reality. But as far as the petrodollar goes, this right here is largely a numeraire. As Warren Mosler would tell you, it's not really about what you transact in. It's what you want to save in that matters. Okay. And so, you know, if you go on our website, you can on real progressives, not real progress in action, but on real progressives for MMT Mondays. Uh, there is a uh, MMT monies on the petrodollar. Recommend checking it out. Uh, but the petrodollar it provided additional hegemony to the the U.S. dollar, and by doing it, it it definitely provides uh, some benefits. Okay, there's definitely benefits for the ubiquity of the U.S. dollar, but it doesn't mean anything. What happens if we suddenly aren't the world reserve currency? The only thing the world reserve currency does for us is allows us to buy imports cheaper. What if it's cheaper to buy products domestically than it is to buy imports? Well, we're going to bring production back. I don't know if that's good or bad. Production costs. It's got waste. It's got all kinds of other aspects to it. It's real resources being burned up of our own, whereas imports are giving pieces of paper to somebody for their stuff. Not a bad deal if you can pull it off, okay? But as you've seen, dollar hegemony has allowed us to be kind of de facto empire, a, a, a neo-colonizing country that literally uses our dollar to extract from around the world. These are all true statements. Do they want to keep that in place? Of course they do. Why wouldn't they? They want to get rich. They want to do this. Okay, this is the world order that they've created. Okay, but what happens if the petrodollar doesn't exist anymore? What happens if we're no longer the, the world reserve currency? Well, 
for things we want to buy in a foreign currency, we'll have to get that currency like every other country has to do. If not, if it's better to do home, we just bring it home and do it. I think people, because there's a lot of, of those uh, Bitcoin blogs late at night and a lot of Peter Schiff nonsense going on, he, hell, even, <laughs> even Jimmy Dore, God, God love you, Jimmy. Even Jimmy Dore had fucking Peter Schiff, fucking Ron Paul. This libertarian strain coming through is just eating our lunch with idiocy. But long people lapping it up, what can I do, right? Other than just keep putting the truth out there as much as I can. And no, I would, hold on, let me hear. First of all, thank you very much, uh, Virginia. Um, I really appreciate that. But let's go back here to this. I would never, ever, under any circumstance, support pegging our currency to any commodity ever. Not only is it the most constraining, poor model for a currency known to man, <laughs> but it also creates a whole bunch of things. Where do you get additional gold? You either destroy the environment digging it up, or you end up raiding another country. It also is very, very... The things we need to do cannot be constrained by the gold standard. It's the stupidest thing. It never stays. It always fails. It's it's a really, really bad proposition. I strongly recommend going to Warren Mosler's website. It's um what is it? Center of the universe. <laughs> Not to, center of the universe. I think that's what it is. Center of the universe is Warren Mosler's uh uh website. And um Find gold, gold, I think it's gold standard thoughts or thoughts on the gold standard or something like that. And it really lays out how ridiculous it is. Okay. Um, and, and ultimately I would strongly recommend sticking away from the right wing, uh, nonsense on the gold standard. It's, it's really stupid. It really is just completely stupid because this is where these bozos get the idea of they're debasing the currency, right? And I, the best way I know how to say this, and I'll just give you this quick story. You hear a lot of split-fingered waste people in the Bitcoin community talking about they're debasing the currency, they're printing money, right? They're talking about the gold standard. I keep using my, my poor headphone pouch, keeps becoming a steering wheel or a pizza pie or anything that a round thing could be. But the gold standard, right? Let's say this is all the gold we have. And we're going to print a certain number of dollars against this pool of gold. Well, let's pretend like it's a pizza pie. Okay. Let's pretend this is a pizza pie. We have it sliced into eight slices. The amount of paper money in the, you know, out in the world has to go against this. So one slice of pizza equals X number of dollars or vice versa. $1 for one slice of pizza. So we get $8 in the entire economy. Well, let's say we need to put $16 into the economy because they're inches and pounds. We shouldn't run out of them. There's no need to run out of them, right? Now, all of a sudden, well, you've, you've got it pegged to gold and you've only got this much gold and you've now doubled the amount of money you're printing. You've debased the currency. You have devalued the currency, right? Because now it's 16. So you have a much smaller slice to get for that dollar. Anyway. <laughs> it's not like we're running around with bags of gold on our back going in there. Hey, that's real gold right there. I think that's probably 24 karat. That might be 
that might be 12 carat and eh, maybe 14 carat 14 karat gold yeah yep that's it yep so ultimately it's ridiculous right and see here i want to say something this is perfect i really want to talk about this for a minute first amendment which libertarians are pro-war well it depends on what you define as war right if you're talking about wars outside the country you know libertarians got a pretty nice peace talk going on there but if it's war against citizens let's say you've got a river running through your property and damn it you'd rather have a swimming hole than a river running through it well you're just gonna go ahead right up there and dam that river up and it don't matter if those cows down river got anything to drink from it don't matter if that man down there got any drinking water as long as you got your swimming hole you're good to go because you're a libertarian and that's personal property leave me alone that's war but they celebrate the peace they're not big on going to war around the world they don't mind going to war against their neighbor they don't mind going to war against their neighbor they don't mean this selfish disgraceful thought process they don't mind that so you know a broke clock is right twice a day okay i used to be a ron paul guy that's how I learned all the creature from Jekyll Isle shit. That's how I found out who Alex Jones was. That's how I found out about all that crap. Okay. And then I grew up. <laughs> I realized that even libertarians in the end require the government to control their contracts. Otherwise, they're just warlords with guns. Keep, get off my property, boy. Right. You can't tell me the nap, the nap. Taxes force. Anyway, so moving on, because I'm a lefty, man. I'm a proud lefty. And I, you know, and I come from libertarian background and I am forever ashamed of it. I can't tell you how ashamed I am of it. Glad I got out of it. I'll leave it at that. Uh, for so many reasons. Okay, so many reasons. Um, but ultimately, at the end of the day, for our survival. Right. I'm going to pull it all back because it's starting to get into that wee hour here. We're up to 70 people. Thank you guys for, uh, thank you guys for hanging around. Hopefully this was good for you. <laughs> but if you think about what I'm saying with the green new deal and you think about Medicare for all, and you think about all the different people going this way and that, you know, we've got to have kind of like the scope. Here, here's your scope statement, okay? Scope statement is we need to survive. What is the problem we're solving? Survival. What is the problem? The environment. The environment's not the problem. It's us. We keep fucking the environment up. So how do we fix it? And let's just say hypothetically we weren't the cause. Let's say it was just the earth. I mean, horrible floods have gone on throughout history. Mass extinctions have gone off throughout history. Okay. I personally don't know that, you know, we can do a whole lot right now short of trying to find a way to adapt. But I'm reading that adaptation is even kind of largely off the table. You know, and, and, and so I think to myself, if that's the case, 
And we've got to do everything we can just on the chance that we can mitigate it. And so I tell my friends in the MMT space, we got to really put all of our mind on this Green New Deal. People aren't going to think it's possible because they're going to think it's too expensive because they're still not facing climate crisis and they're still not facing how the economy works. So we got to teach them MMT too. We got to teach them how the federal government can spend unlimited amount of money and it can tax some of it back. We can deficit spend as we need to to solve these major problems. And then we can come back and we can offset that with taxes for the wealthy to take away their power for buying the government. The problem is right now it's existential now, right? The thing with the rich, and if you've ever watched any of these movies, they've got bonkers, they've got all kinds of things out there that allow them to survive. A lot of things that us people that'll be left behind won't be able to. And so we've got to do everything we can to make sure that we're able to survive, period. So my state-by-state state friends, guys, I want health care. I want everyone to have health care, but it needs to be part of a larger framework. It needs to be the layer cake that Fadal Kaboob puts forward. Please look up layer cake Fadal Kaboob on our sister site, Real Progressives. You go to Real Progressives YouTube channel, sign up. You'll get more of the educational videos. You'll get macro and cheese as it's been released uh, from the podcast world. It gets put over there on YouTube. You can check all that stuff out. Pretty much no live streaming really goes on on Real Progressives. It's pretty much all um, the podcasts and other um, you know, talks by academics and the like. But and, and you know what? I love this idea of public funding for elections and so forth. I really do. But again, part of what we're dealing with here is, is that we've got to act now. And to get money out of politics, as we say, it's, it's past the point of just the Congress voting it out. When you're looking at the Supreme Court has ruled that money is speech and speech is, you know, part of the, they're going to defend free speech. They're going to call money speech and they're calling corporations people. So it's going to require a fundamental change, whether it be a constitutional amendment or whatever. But again, eight years, if you go back an hour and a half to the beginning of this, and we're talking about timelines, which is the point of this discussion, you realize that we don't have time for the ancillary stuff. And not to mention, we don't have reps in, in any of these things that aren't largely bought and paid for by some sort of lobby firm, okay? The people that aren't, and I don't even know who they are because I see no evidence of anybody truly, truly fighting for us. But for those people that, let's just say, are, I, I don't see the evidence. I don't see the evidence. It doesn't mean it's not there. I just don't see it. I don't see the evidence that Congress, with or without money in politics right now, I mean, they're not going to vote to get rid of money in politics. That's the problem. They're not going to do it. And I agree with that wholeheartedly, First Amendment. Um, yes, they definitely did. And they keep losing more and more credibility with the things that they say and do. Um, so, again, Eight years, IPCC, eight years, Green New Deal solves these problems, or at least is a direct action towards those problems. The rest of the world, when they see the United States take a bold step like that, will follow suit. We are the leader in that space. 
And if we got back to doing something like that, the rest of the world would start because this is not a U.S. problem as much as it is a U.S. problem because we're, you know, this imperial nation. The rest of the world, especially the rest of the global north in particular, has to really, really do a number on cutting back its carbon. And the global south really needs reparations in the biggest way possible. The global south needs a lot of debt forgiveness, debt jubilees. It needs a lot of investment for real for them to reclaim their own food sovereignty, their own energy sovereignty, to build actual trading blocks amongst each other, to avoid dollar hegemony, to avoid the U.S.'s ability to do domestic policy through other means through the U.S. dollar, dollar diplomacy, as they say. Okay. Um, so, I, I, you know, it's late at night. I guarantee you, I missed a thousand things I would have liked to have talked about tonight. The good news is that I talk Monday, Wednesday, Friday at noon on the Rogue Scholar on this same channel, Eastern Time. I'm also typically on Tuesday nights with Jordan Cheriton over at Status Coup, and we have a good time. And then Thursday nights at 8 p.m., we have my Let's Get Ready to Grumble over there at Status Coup as well. And Saturday mornings every week. You've got a macro and cheese podcast episode um, that I do with some wonderful guest, um, and um, hope you'll check it out. But in the meantime, I hope tonight was uh, useful. I'm very, very concerned about us growing as activists, educating one another. I would welcome you all to please go to our website, sign up. Let's see if we can build chapters together. Let's—I'm—I'm I'm dead serious. I'm scared for our lives. And the only way I know to do this is to build chapters, teach each other, and work collaboratively together to have a network that we can integrate at every community level and really push for this Green New Deal, push for MMT knowledge, push for healthcare, all the other things that are rolled into the Green New Deal, and do it collaboratively and do it within the time that we have. Um, if you agree with this, if you like this, please sign up for, uh, you know, subscribe to our channel. Uh, definitely click on that button to get reminders. Please like and share this if you can. Always helps us to get more people to keep eyes on this. And also just remember, when I talk about MMT and you see me debate on Twitter or you see me on another show talking about this stuff, I'm not trying to harm anyone. I'm not trying to hurt anyone's feelings. I'm trying to make a very boring subject, a subject that most people don't find interesting in the least, economics. I'm trying to make this very vital subject a little bit of a cage match, a little bit of a death match, just because it's the kind of thing that people won't pay attention to unless you sucker punch them with some truth. I know I came from the world. I got two master's degrees learning economics, but I learned it the libertarian way. I learned Austrian economics. I learned von Mises. I learned all that shit. And I had to unlearn it once I realized it didn't pertain to the real world. And that's when I found MMT, the knowledge that comes with that. And I have developed my own analysis, you know, as I think about things. Now, mind you, I'm climbing on the shoulders of giants. I've got nothing really new under the sun. The things I take are oftentimes repackaged from Bottle or from Warren or from Ron Gray or from the other folks. And I take it and I try and boil it down to what I consider to be regular person level. These guys are geniuses and they write academic papers. And most people aren't really going to read a white paper. I wish you would. God, I wish everybody was just a voracious reader, but we all know that's not true. 
<laughs> okay, we all know that's not true. So I hope that we can get you guys sign up on our website, find a way to build these chapters with us. I am not, I'm not the world's most cagey chapter builder, but I am a damn good project manager. And if I get enough people that are willing to do this stuff, we can roll this out. We've got a 501c3 and we've got a 501c4 that can both handle the education side and can handle the political action. Two, two nonprofits, two different purposes, two different goals, one purpose to survive. So if you guys are interested, hit us up. We need you. Let's make this thing fun. Let's make survival kick ass. Let's have some fun. Okay. Because we need you. And with that, I want to thank all of my friends out there, all of you all who donated tonight. Particularly want to thank 66 people still here after an hour and 40 minutes of one dude without a single prop, just myself. I feel so power, uh, you know, just powerful in terms of not myself, but collectively us going through this stuff together. Because as I'm working through this, I'm watching the, the chat and I'm seeing so much great insight. So many people, I see light bulbs going on and, and I see people that are interested in growing and learning. And I just want to thank each and every one of you all for doing that because I get really depressed sometimes. I'm not even joking. My health sucks. All these things suck. And then I start seeing nobody's really digging the MMT stuff or not enough people are, or I look at my clock and I say, oh my God, time's ticking on this green new deal. And I start freaking out and I look at my son and I'm like, I'm so sorry. I couldn't do it for you, buddy. Stuff like that. I, you know, we all have our own things, but this is mine. And I really appreciate you guys being a part of this with me. And so with that, um, I would say that I've been doing this for about 15 years total, seven as real progressives. And I uh, really appreciate you guys paying attention and checking us out. And with that, I am going to get my ass out of here and get to bed. You guys, if you want, smoke some Chiba, enjoy a good night. I'm out of here. The Rogue Scholar is a production of Real Progressives. If you would like to support our work, please visit patreon.com slash realprogressives.